Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, an episode of Outtakes with John Keating, who has that 70s card show. This really were his questions for me. He's been on uh, this show several times, so I wanted to be on his, uh, to be fair, and uh, I enjoy his show, which I heartily recommend. But thanks, Tops, Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Creating, Beckett Authentication, my sponsors. And uh, listeners, appreciate all of y'all as well. John asked me some different questions that other people don't ask. Enjoy uh, the back and forth with him. He's an articulate guy, and we've uh, enjoyed uh, forming a friendship here. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks for your questions, and thanks for your show. And uh, here are the outtakes. Do you remember your first professional sporting event? Did you go to Forbes Field? Yeah, yeah probably. Okay. Let's see. That would have been seven. But Clemente was in right field. We'd sit in, in right field or up the first baseline. My dad loved baseball, and it was just great. I don't remember going as a whole family. It was just my dad and me and then my brother. You immediately hooked on Roberto Clemente? Love at first he sight? He player. He just was an amazing player. When you right. remember back, it, just, it seemed like he never made an out. When it, yeah. He never made an important out. Or if he did, he, he had some kind of a rocket that somebody snagged. He wasn't hitting it over the fence that much at Forbes Field, which was intelligent a lot of gap power but pretty tough to put it out in deep center field forbes field it wasn't configured for power hitters i don't think i think uh you look at a guy like clemente and he's not someone you uh turn on the film and show a kid how to play baseball his energy was very frenetic at the plate in the field a lot of what people would say would be wasted energy but it worked for him his body he had so many moving parts in his swing and and most of his famous throws are pirouettes where when you practice that as a little kid you have no idea where the ball right, is going. Right, as right. you pirouette and throw it, is it going to third base or is it going home or in between? You really had to get your bearings. And he just was like a gyroscope or something. Somehow uh-huh. he was able to spin, turn in the corner there, throw, and throw a rope either on the dot, one hopper to perfect. Seemed like it was always a perfect throw, John. I know it, yeah. it couldn't have been. Well, there's one there, I guess, in the World Series against the Orioles where he throws from the right field corner and yeah. Brooks Robinson is halfway down the third base line and just turns around and goes back because <laughs> not even a one hopper. It was the same way at the plate too. It looked like he was diving at pitches and whatnot. You're hooked on Clemente. We know you eventually leave the nest. I, I come from a, a four sport town. What was it like? I know you're a Cowboys fan, I assume now, but moving around, how do you adopt new teams? You didn't have a basketball team in Pittsburgh or even in Dallas when you got there, hockey team. How was that adapting? You didn't latch on any other teams prior to maybe becoming a Mavs or a Stars fan, right? Let's see. Let's take it in order. Yeah, baseball is my first love and Pirates, first love there. And, and I've been pretty faithful to him in spite of some thick and thin, but I don't right. follow it as much for the Pirates because it's discouraging. Mm-hmm. For basketball, I'm pretty much a Mavs fan. When I was growing up, it was WVU, West Virginia, right. Gary West. That was from being in Wheeling, West Virginia. Not so much NBA at those times. With Jerry West, when he went to the Lakers, I loved pro basketball. I loved college basketball, but Mm -hmm. the Mavs pretty much are my loyalty there. UCLA, my parents moved to LA in 67. So perfect timing. If anything, a year too late, but that great run. And I actually thought about transferring to UCLA. It just was magical years for Coach Wooden and and the steady stream of young men that he molded and got to play discipline together and win championships with all these superstars he put together. Football, pretty much Cowboys- I never was a Steelers fan. The Steelers were not very good. I remember seeing Mike Ditka play in college. That was a highlight. He was impossible to bring down. He looked like a giant with these you know, guys were trying to bring him down, and it took four or five guys to bring him down. He just was a, 
big, tough a guy. Beast. Yeah. A beast, yeah. And From then, Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, he went to Pitt, yeah. Then, then also, and Pitt was good in those days. And then for hockey, really, at Bowling Green, I got into hockey. Bowling Green had won the national CCHA or whatever it is. The, they'd won, and they were always very competitive. So I really got into college hockey and tracked some of those guys that uh, kept going. Falcons, is that what we're talking about here? The yeah, Bowling the Falcons. Green Falcons? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a number of NHL players. But then coming down to Dallas after a while, when the North Stars became the Stars, that was cool. Season's tickets to all those. The I still have the Mavs. And the ones I let go most recently were the stars. It's so much fun to go to a hockey game. It's better than TV, that's for sure. A lot yeah. of sports are better on TV. Hockey is not. For sure. Great seats, really enjoyed that. But the seats were pretty pricey and I had seats for a while. And I went through all my buddies that wanted to go to hockey games. Right, yeah. And I thought, okay. And I knew I could always get them. You can always stub hub, get them. But hockey is a great sport. When you're growing up or watching sports, we all want to be baseball players or football players or whatnot. When did you know you wanted to be a mathematician? When I figured I wasn't going to make the Pirates. <laughs> you know, when I was sixth grade, John, and I'm, I'm creating these uh, probabilistic dice games for baseball. Not okay. football, not basketball, not hockey, but just baseball, all the rich statistics. But that, that was sixth grade. And I had a year into it when I found a way to surreptitiously cheat. I didn't wait to die, but I goosed up Roberto Clemente's odds a little bit. So I wanted to make sure if I ever had anybody over, it was pretty understood I was going to be picking Clemente for my team. And then you roll the dice and oh, you get another double. (laughs) (laughs) How convenient. But it was true to life in terms of batting averages uh, within a few points, but it wasn't True for Clemente, a little bit of boosting of And there were no defensive statistics in those days. But this right. was like APBA and and Stratomatic and Catacoelis thing where you'd spin the wheel and all that stuff. So I had all those things too. So that led you into your... I think so. Yeah. Just the back of the baseball card gives you a lot of room for trying to analyze. And it was great. I've been to Bowling Green, Ohio. I've worked in Bowling Green, Ohio. There's not a lot in Bowling Green, Ohio to do. You... At some point, I assumed you got your tenure ship and you felt like you were set. And was that it? You were going to do your consulting? Yeah, I mean, I, I was. I got tenure early, and there really wasn't that much to do there. On the other hand, I was single, and uh, the hobby was beginning that boom period. Yep. Where every weekend I could go somewhere, and I didn't go every single weekend, but I went as much as I wanted to to card shows as a single guy and driving distance. Yep. That's really where I built my collections in the uh, mid late seventies in in Bowling Green Bowling. shows buying dealer tables buying. So what was that first buy? What was the impetus for that first buy? You're a collector up to that point. What is? No, I'd, uh, the, I'd been doing the buying trips even before I got to Ohio. Yeah, I mean, even I'd before buy- that though. When you're at some point, I know you talked about uh, I guess your time in the army and whatnot. But what what led you to cross that line from building collections to? I'm building inventory as I no, no I don't, that, that's very subtle. I, I don't know that I even thought about that line other than that's what was done in those days. It was always working your way back. And uh, to get older cards, you, you almost couldn't even buy older cards from collectors as much as you'd have to trade. You'd have to have trade stuff. And so you had to get cards from non-collectors. I put ads in the papers and things like that, even before I was in the army, but I did get some collections when I was at Fort Bliss and I got collections in Hawaii since my parents had moved out there in 73. So I got some 52 tops high numbers out there. And so now I got trading currency. By this time now, I'd organized some shows and I had some extra stuff. I had a want list 
that was respectable, that I needed a few gouties. I've needed a few play balls. I recovered from my tragic mistake <laughs> in 1960. And so I put together the rest of the 40 play ball, 39, 41, all those. But like I said, it really, John, wasn't about money. It was more about you had to have some trade material right. to get some of the good cards that you wanted. But then all of a sudden you realize, hey, I got more than trade material here. And there were more shows coming out. And so you put stuff out to sell. But a lot of those early shows were fun because a lot of the dealers were your customers. It wasn't so busy that you would roam around, almost leave your table untended and see what you could trade with. I suppose you were around in those days. It was yeah, fat. late 70s. Simpler yeah, it was neat. Yeah. By late now, 70s, it was starting to get a little bit more commercialized. Sure. In late 60s, going into the 70s, kind of 10 years before my time, we talk about the cards. When I was growing up, obviously, Hannes and Mickey, the 52 Mickey. What was it in the 60s? Was there a card to have? We know at the Mount Rushmore cards is essentially, most of us can agree on that. But what was it like back then in the 60s? Did somebody have to get the 52 Mantle or the... I don't remember that, but I wasn't in the 60s. I wasn't very nationally, I was neighborhood aware. But in the early 70s, by 72, 3, 4, there's starting to be shows. And I just think it wasn't. There's no grails, right? It was sporting, but even the Wagner, that wasn't even thought of. The Wagner would only come up if somebody was a completist, which most people were, and they were getting close on T206s. But in the meantime, they were working on T205s and T207s and and all the and Fatima team cards and stuff that would be you'd be priced out, but if right. you had the right trade material and if you could trade something, even if it was pretty rare, but it was a set you'd never be able to complete. If you could trade for something you could complete, so mm-hmm. a real premium on completing sets. Not so much on type cards. I really got into type cards later on, but I think type cards are a great way to collect, to get uh, samples from a bunch of different sets. But the impetus in the early mid-70s was completing sets, and there'd be bragging rights about complete sets, not about individual cards. More so. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the transition from the 60s to the 70s. One thing that fascinates me, obviously, is the the cultural part of it. Most of these ballplayers had mandatory military service still at that point, high and tight haircuts. When we break into the 70s, by the end of the 70s, we're beards, mustaches, sideburns, all that stuff. Was it a gradual or a rapid change from that high and tight to all of a sudden the Oakland A's are doing their thing? Did you notice that at the time? I noticed in my own hairstyle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think go from high school. To you let your hair down a little bit? I had long hair, but uh, gotcha. you know, it's just vertical men. He was in the Marines. He didn't make a big deal about it. So somewhere in the late sixties with Vietnam, it switched and there was a more counter counterculture and protest and rebelliousness. And But I was a college student, so that was par for the course. And I saw SMU, what really was a pretty conservative university in the South, evolve as I was there, because I was there for eight straight years with getting undergraduate, master's, and PhD. Yeah, my theory is it came from a lot of places like UCLA with the basketball side of it, because uh, obviously college basketball was king eclipsed pro basketball for a very long time. Yeah. One interesting thing is in the 1970 top set, you'll see a lot of lines in the year-by-year stats that say in military service, and that just disappeared after that. That's something that kind of vanished away from the cards. At that period, you're collecting present day in the early 70s or mid-70s. You're going backwards. Most people are going forward and backward, but the, the going forward was pretty simple. It was easy. You know, by, by 73 and 74, you could just buy the set. I, I, I actually bought a 72 set from a dealer that had you know broken a lot of cases and stuff like that but 71 i don't there probably was some option but i don't remember that in 71 but by 74 75 
You could buy the whole set for 10 or 12 bucks or 15 bucks. Buying it card by card didn't make a lot of sense. So did, you get the current year set, but meantime, you were working your way, which I was. How did, how did dealers get cases back then? Because it was strictly retail, Kmart, you know, whatever. There were cut card cases, remainder situations. There were vending boxes yep. that went in the gum that went to certain large dealers. It wasn't a backdoor deal. That was a legit buy right from well, It wasn't cops. a legal backdoor deal. They printed up a bunch of stuff and then they packed out and maybe... These were ones didn't get packed out. They were just sheets. There were even some dealers at some point that got uncut sheets that they could then cut up. Sure. We know that happens. So one contraband, it was, again, just running the sheets of the cards. It's just cardboard. You know, what printing is a volume game. What costs is not the ink and the paper, I think. It's the distribution and the cutting and the packing out and the putting in the gum and the wrappers and the middlemen and all that kind of stuff. So tops. Had lots of cards that went to people that never saw gum right. in the early 70s. Were you actively collecting football and basketball at that point? Right. I said I had a 61-62 Fleer basketball set that I had par- partially from when I was a kid that I traded in 76 or somewhere that traded it, which Why? was a great deal at the time. But I just thought, eh, I'm not, I-, I can always get another Fleer basketball set. It's only 66 cards. Right. You know? right. And I, I woke up. A few decades later, Rip Van Winkle thought, oh, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> it's around here somewhere. That's what I do with my collection. I could have sworn I had that somewhere. Let's talk a little bit about the 70s, the culture. Tell me about your music taste back then. Did they evolve? Probably. It got were you, more... Were you a Beatles guy? Because that sounds like it's I right love the Beatles. The house, right? yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm prime Beatles age. Are you a Lennon or a McCartney guy? Probably McCartney since I'm left-handed. Okay. All right. We're on, the, we're on opposite kind sides. Of, uh, mystical and extra little- philosophical. Little edgier too. All right. So Beatles. So what else we have going in the seventies? Beatles are gone by that point. Let's see. Kansas, Foreigner, okay. ELO. I liked orchestral rock kind of stuff. It was musical, but had, you know, a, a good pulse to it. Sure. It sounds complicated too. You're a math guy. So a lot of that stuff was well, I mean, math m- and, music is math. Yeah. Music yep. is math, yeah. Yep, for sure. The man in the- 